Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. For November 15th, 2020, I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. And sitting in for Catherine tonight that had a work engagement, uh, our frequent guest and guest host, Kelly Masias. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me, Tim and David. Yes. Glad to have you. Well, K- Kelly, uh, well, here in a minute, we're going to have uh, 20 minutes into the show from Let's Talk Elections. Ethan Kelly, if you haven't seen his channel on YouTube, definitely go visit it after you listen to the podcast. Or you can you can do both. Just make sure you finish the podcast. But we're going to have Ethan on the show again, and what he's been doing with that channel since the last time we had him on in 2018 is just amazing. So we're going to um, ch- catch up with him but in the meantime, uh, Kelly, I want to get your thoughts on election 2020. And, of course, there's a lot of facets, so just pick what you'd like to start off with. Sure. Well, let's talk about the fact that the election, in some people's mind, is not over yet, which is just crazy, right? We have a, a clear winner, and yet there's an entire party and a sitting president who doesn't accept the results of this election, which is totally unprecedented. So here we are a week after the election has been called for Joe Biden, and yet Donald Trump thinks that he's still entitled to the presidency. So this has been, you know, the most incredible week um, that I can ever remember, and I've been following politics for a long time. Um, What has really excited me in the last week is certainly the fact that um, Georgia has now been called for Joe Biden. And we have to acknowledge that that has been the work of a lot of activists on the ground, a lot of grassroots activists, and, of course, my favorite, the Abrams, who um, I just want to, you know, point out that Stacey had been saying for a really long time that Georgia was ready to go blue. And so there were a lot of people in the Democratic establishment that kept saying, no, no, you know, we need to focus on other battleground states. We need to particularly focus on the states that – Um, Hillary Clinton lost in 2016, and Abrams kept beating the drum that Georgia was really ready. And I think that we saw um, in this election the kind of campaign that she ran when she ran for governor um, in terms of who came out, who got registered. Um, You know, we know that the um, sort of white older electorate wasn't growing and that there was a growing population of Latinos and Asians, young people, um, white progressive, um, and, a, and a black electorate that actually could, you know, be mobilized a lot more. Um, and so the fact that Georgia has been called for Biden is really exciting to me because I think it says that, um, you know, the ways that the Democratic sort of establishment maybe has written off the, the South um, is not true, that there's, you know, lots of opportunity. And we've seen it in in, in a lot of places around the country, but I, I'm really excited about what's happening in Georgia right now. 
Yes, and we'll get more into Georgia. Um, you know, I've noticed the polls that have come out that say that like maybe a fifth of Republicans or Trump voters really believe that you know Joe Biden won. I mean, are they just denying the truth, or um, do they really believe this? I mean, is it just you know like you want it to be so if we say it, it'll be that way, or do they really feel that way? What do you think, Kelly? I have no earthly idea. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, it's so bizarre to me, again, because this is so such a departure from the norm that it's hard to understand what is happening right now. Um, and, and what really, I like to juxtapose this to 2016, where, you know, many of us were devastated by the fact that Hillary Clinton um, lost. We know she won the popular vote, right, but she lost the Electoral College, and we accepted it. I mean, it was, it was a hard, bitter pill to swallow, but we, it was a legitimate election and she lost. So the fact that they um, continue to try to mount these legal strategies, you know, I'm in Washington, D.C., and yesterday there was this entire million MAGA march. Um, of course, a million people didn't show up, but, you know, hundreds or thousands of people showed up to say that the election was being stolen it's just, it's mind boggling. And, you know, legitimately, they do not have a leg to stand on. But I think that they will continue this narrative, um, you know, certainly for the next few months, if not into the midterms, and even potentially into 2024. Yeah, it, it is uh, pretty shocking that um, they claim this. I mean, because like, in the House, we, I can accept the fact that we did not win as many seats as 2018, that we didn't defeat Susan Collins and uh, Tom Tillis, and we lost Doug Jones, and that we didn't do as well in the Senate. I mean, I can accept those results as a Democrat. I don't have to like them, but I can understand that that's math. Um, Tim, Kelly talked some about Georgia, and we know that in the past week, uh, Brad Raffensperger is trying to save his own skin. At the same time, I think he actually understands he has to do his job as the person that's in charge of Georgia elections. And so he um, ordered a hand recount, and, and my fear was this would take um, just you know days on days, and it would just be a mess. Although in your county, you participated in the recount of Chattooga County. Tell us about that process firsthand. Well, yeah, I did serve as a monitor for the Democratic Party of Georgia and the Biden campaign uh, in my home county on Friday. Uh, 10,104 total ballots were counted by um, six women, seated in pairs at three tables. An employee of the registrar's office ran also sitting over on the side and in and out table where she like distributed out bundles of ballots to the counters and then retrieved the counted ballots and reported them by computer to a third party data collecting firm who then reported the results directly to the secretary of state's office and they got a little system going and got up ahead of steam, and it went very smoothly. There were no problems. Um, the count that I witnessed, and I sat there for the whole time that, that it took place, it was finished in a bit over, oh, seven hours, 
and the result was that not one ballot was different from the totals reported on election day. Not not one. You, you know, guys, since 2000, there have been 31 statewide recounts in the United States after elections. And of those 31, only three have been overturned. And the largest initial margin in any of those three was 267 votes. Now, this was over 14,000. And you alluded to it, David. Why why, why would they do this? Uh, I mean, you know, I understand an audit. That's what they called it, by the way. Uh, Clever little word. That's what they called it all day Friday, an audit. And uh, audits have to have a sample, you know, done in one race. The one race they picked was the presidential race. My question was about the sample size. The sample size was every last ballot in the presidential race hand-counted. I hope they finish. I hope they finish down in, uh, you know, the metro Atlanta area, where where, where you, you you might be talking about nearly a million votes in Fulton County. I hope they finish in your county, David, because they were sending out emails asking for uh, you know volunteers to monitor down there tomorrow. So I I hope they finish this thing because he said it's a deadline now, eleven fifty nine p.m. Wednesday night, and he wants to certify the results on Friday. You think they're going to make it? I don't, I don't know. I will tell you the good news. I read on Twitter. I mean, I won't say that it was the official official, but that they finished Fulton County. Now, they had, you know, like a staff. Now, that'd be shocking. Yeah, so Fulton got finished really, really quickly, um, and I know they do want to finish it by the 20th, which um, maybe they ought to take the uh, ladies from your county in Chattooga and send them down to – the trouble spots, which <laughs> Floyd might be one of them. We've heard some, even though it's a county of only 100,000, um, it does not have the most efficient election services from what I've heard around. Um, mm. Kelly, as an outside observer, um, I, I don't know how much you know about this whole thing with the recount, but you know Georgia got up to 14,000 vote lead for Joe Biden. It appears that he's going to win Georgia by more than Arizona, which is also an over 10,000 figure. Um, but both uh, senators, Kay Loeffler and David Perdue, called for the resignation of Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Uh Donald Trump has is, is criticized him on Twitter. He's also criticized Brian Kemp on Twitter as well. Um, from someone on the outside, what do you make of what's going on with Georgia and the recount? Well, you know, I have been obsessively watching the recount and and the numbers in particular, and I agree that the last um, numbers that I saw were upwards of 14,000, and I think you're right that Biden will win by more than that. Um, You know, it's interesting. The sitting president wants to punish people in his own party for not stealing the election properly, right? I mean – you know, he, he's, he's angry that it didn't go his way and wants to um, actively punish 
these folks who who we know Brian Kemp actually has a history of voter suppression and has done um, some really awful things in terms of you know purging um, voters, particularly black voters, from the rolls. Um, and so for him to come out and say that he wants um, you know he he's upset with he's upset with Kemp he's upset with you know others in his party is just him lashing out because he has no chance of winning and I think it says again um, you know that there were really skillful political strategists who knew that the demographics were changing in Georgia and knew that Georgia wasn't Donald Trump to win had been saying that for years. Um, and, you know, they, they took all of that for granted and just assumed that they would be able to win. And so I actually have to say that the petty in me is delighting in watching Donald Trump have some meltdowns around this um, because, you know, they can count and recount and recount again, and I think the numbers will still be the same. He lost, and he's, having, he's, he's in denial about that. Yes, and any of the votes that were done early or in on election day were done on a computer, and therefore the number goes into a computer, and it, then you've got a printout this year. You got this piece of paper um, that you took then to the um, ballot, and you had to put it in, which was used. So unless something nefarious, which he's claiming now uh, with the election company Dominion, um, happened, which – Everybody's saying it's the most secure election from that kind of interference we've ever had. Um, there's really no way to change it. It's not hanging chads and dimpled chads and all this. Um, other yeah, than somehow absentee ballots, there's really nothing much that could change. Kelly? That's what I was going to say. That's totally right. And that was my experience, too, in Washington, which which would have a lot less. Um, sort of heat around it, right? But that was my experience too. You know, we, we you voted, they printed out uh, an electronic ballot which had your information on it, and then you fed it into a machine. And so, short of voting, you know, by pa- hand, you know, paper and pencil or something, it's very hard to fake these votes. It's very hard to forge these votes. Um, and yet, the story is that these votes were somehow forged. Um, even in the in the midst of him having gotten more than he got last time, you know, so it's it's so and and the fact that so if there if if this was some massive um, conspiracy, what's interesting is, but they won more seats in the house, right? So so in some places they were really good, you know the conspiracy was good and not others. I mean it just it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean obviously Phyllis. Like, if we were going to cheat, what we have cheated and uh, knocked off some senators and, and state reps and state senators and, and Congress people, I mean, it, I mean we would have gotten rid of Susan. We would have gotten rid of Susan Collins for absolute sure, right? If, the, if that's how we were going to do it, we would have gotten rid of her for sure. Yes, and I don't think we would have let Tommy Tuberville, who doesn't even know the three branches of government, in there. Um which that's a whole other thing on its own. Um, But now we do have these runoffs that we may not uh, get to fully talk about this, but um, Tim, these runoffs, uh, they have really taken a nasty turn. We had Doug Collins and Kelly Loeffler attacking each other to see who would get the plurality of the Republican base. Um, So everybody kind of didn't say much about Raphael Warnock. 
And then this week, I mean, he knew it was coming because he had that peremptory commercial where he talked about puppies and um, not stepping on crack or stepping on cracks and uh, eating pizza with a fork. And it, it, let me just put it this way: the attacks that have come all week long, uh, nothing's accused him of eating pizza with a fork. It's been far, far worse, hasn't it? Oh yeah, the the uh, a lot of them have been racially motivated and. Uh, you know, a, a, as you pointed out, like the like the second day of ads that uh, uh, Lepler was running, she just unloaded on. I mean, it was, you know, uh, she had him being big buddies with Fidel Castro and uh, just oh, socialist this and oh boy it was it, it was brutal what she's done you know of the four candidates coming in by far he had the highest approval rating and you alluded to why he really had been spared all of the personal attacks that the others were getting uh, 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 uh leffler and collins were just throwing chainsaws at each other uh during during this election process but it did not take her long to t- turn the guns on him, and she has the money to do it with. She would be willing to spend millions of her own uh, dollars in these runoffs. Uh, you've seen some more stuff going on today with uh, – I noticed this morning on all the Talking Heads shows, uh, Asif made the rounds, and on each show, the host mentioned – that, you know, David Perdue was invited, and he didn't come. I saw uh, Reverend Warnock on the show. Uh, they mentioned that Kelly Leffler was invited. They're not going on any of the national talk shows. And we're hearing now that David Perdue is refusing to debate. Uh, another interesting thing, which I, I find really head-scratching, is that the two of them, uh, Luffler and uh, Purdue are going to run as a team, and these these are two very different people, aren't they? Yes, they are. And, and honestly, I think people say that if you had a divided outcome, that um, it would be more likely to be Purdue and Warnock than Ossoff and Loeffler. So you'd think that right. um, David Purdue might not. It hitches wagon. Although I think this election is going to be turnout, turnout, turnout. Now I w- may break in at any minute if if Ethan calls in. But until then, um, Kelly, there was a most disturbing. I don't know what you call whatever people post on this new thing called Parlor. I it was reposted on Twitter, but whatever post Kelly Loeffler did not put on her Twitter timeline. Apparently, did not put on Facebook, but she only put on this Parlor. This would have been the kind of thing that might have made you know George Wallace blush. Or actually, let's hold that thought, Kelly. We'll come back to it after um, we get to our guest, um, and we want to welcome on to the show from Let's Talk Election, second time on the show, Mr. Ethan Kelly. Welcome, Ethan. Hi, it's great to be here. Yeah, great to have you back. Um, well, Ethan, I want to start out right off. Now, we talked about the channel before, and before this channel was you know, basically maps and, and you talking about it and doing just a very thorough, wonderful job. But I want to tell you graphically and as far as the 
um, variety that you have now this cycle, you've just taken it to a new level. Um, kind of tell us your thought process going into this 2020 cycle, what you wanted to do with Let's Talk Elections. Well, in 2018, I did a few election predictions. Um, I did them on a pretty reoccurring basis, but this election, I wanted to uh, consider multiple hypothetical situations um, throughout the entirety of the campaign season. I mean, this was a very weird campaign season. Uh, at one point in time, it looked like Bernie Sanders was absolutely going to be the nominee, despite us for three years thinking that it was going to be Joe Biden. And then uh, Biden came from behind and ended up doing very well. Um, and throughout the months with COVID-19 and the economy, there's a lot of uncertainty. So um, I wanted to pretty much dive into numerous possibilities, talking about where the Democrats could potentially do very, very well, whereas the Republicans could do uh, very, very well in another instance. Um, so rather than just do you know, purely uh, election predictions, I wanted to dive into hypothetical situations and discuss impacts of certain issues um, or a certain voter group on the election and how that would change the outcome. Yes. And you've been, you know, like I said, it's far more sophisticated uh, and just uh, you can tell the, um, you know, production values. That's using more of a TV term uh, of what you've done as well as um, what you've done in content is just another level. Now, Ethan, I think we covered this last time. You would have been a sophomore when you came on last time. Now you're a senior. Um, let me just ask you about this. You're putting out a lot of days, two videos a day. Has the COVID schooling restrictions in your area, are, are there some? Has that helped you be able to produce more video content this fall? Yeah, absolutely. So my area is very liberal. Um, so they were immediate with the COVID restrictions. Beginning of March or mid-March, we were, you know, told that we wouldn't be coming back to school until at least the next year. And now um, the earliest we could potentially go back, and they're still going to make a decision on it, uh, in person is February. So we have all of this time, practically a year since we got off, 11 months at least, uh, 11 months that we will be uh, completely virtual. Um, so that definitely has helped being able to um, – spend my time at home definitely you know reducing the travel time just allows me the opportunity to make more videos and um having my senior schedule where i actually intentionally put in a break at 12 to 12 45 that way i would have time to eat and also make a video just because as the election started to ramp up closer to november i knew that it was very possible that it could be happening hour after hour and i wanted to stay committed to two videos a day because at some point, one wasn't going to cut it just because there were things happening in the morning that directly impacted the election. There were things happening in the evening. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I was able to cover the most content possible um, in a way that was actually not too stressful. It was uh, very smooth. And so from the beginning of COVID through now, I won't be in school until at least February. And they said it would be an option if we wanted to go back. So um, I definitely have a lot more free time than I did before. And that's part of the reason why I upload multiple times a day. Yes. Well, well, I hate that for you on a personal level that, you know, some of these experiences have been, um, uh, you know, ruined for you. I don't know if I mentioned this to you in booking the show or last time you were on, but my daughter, uh, she's a senior as well. And now they're getting to go back to school more so, um, but for good or bad. Um, so, but it's still been an, an impact to her. Her soccer season got ruined last year, halfway through. And so um, I, I kind of, fully understand what you're looking at but you have made such good use of your time and I also teach high school students and I would say like 
while you're not able to do things you want to do, if you can set the table for your life down the road, look at this guy. Look at what he's done with his time off, and I think you're a shining example of the graduates of 2021 of how to use their time. Thank you. I mean, um, that, that really means a lot. So I was just going to say, um, I, I mean, it's different around the country for a lot of seniors. So is she she's fully in person or is she hybrid? They kind of go in person till things get bad and then they pull back. Um, I actually work in a different system. We're on hybrid learning uh, right now. So um, it, it just varies uh, around here. But this is north of Atlanta, more rural Georgia, and um, they're they're wanting to risk it, we'll just say, uh, in a lot of counties, okay. not necessarily when I work in. Um, I think they've been more responsible than most anywhere around here. Um, well, let me ask you a political question. I'm going to pass it to uh, Kelly and Tim for other questions. And you have so many videos, and we're all going to touch on some. The one I want to touch on is one you did this past week, How Trump Could Have Won. Um, now, I, I guess I'm into horror movies since we just had Halloween recently, but um, – what did you come up with, you know, beyond the video, or how did you uh, come up with your analysis there? Well, there was always the possibility that Trump was going to win the election. Uh, a lot of the polling indicated that Donald Trump probably wasn't going to do too well, and he didn't do too well um, based off the electoral map that we have now. But what we saw was that there was still a 10 to 20 percent chance that Donald Trump could have won the presidency. And at that point in time, I mean, it wasn't too difficult to draw a map. Um, if the polls were as wrong as they were in 2016, and somehow, after four years of supposedly correcting themselves, they were even more wrong. But this time, they predicted the election winner correctly. Um, and I think that Donald Trump really needed a polling uh, mistake, and he got that, but it wasn't enough. And in my situation, it would have had to been slightly more to the right. He would have had to carry Florida and North Carolina, which it looks like he's going to do, at least in North Carolina. I don't know if the Associated Press has called it yet, but I know that the major news networks have. Um, and also, he would have had to win Arizona, and he already won Iowa and Ohio. So he would have had to win those states, including Georgia, um, which would not have been too difficult looking at the 2016 map. But then he still wouldn't have reached 270. If Joe Biden just held on to the Rust Belt, the three states that he flipped, just with those three states, they put them put him over the top. So I knew that Donald Trump would have to get one state, particularly from the Rust Belt, in order to win the election. Um, and I thought that state would be uh, Pennsylvania. Surprisingly, Wisconsin was the closest out of them all, but uh, they were all still within a few percentage points. Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, I sort of think, less than a percentage point in terms of a Biden victory. So my thinking was that uh, Donald Trump would have to get one state in the Rust Belt at a minimum and carry practically every other swing state. And while he did well in a few of those swing states, it just wasn't enough. Uh, as we saw on election day, for him to actually win the election. But if that scenario was to occur, he would practically need to repeat the 2016 map uh, with very minimal losses. Yes, sir. Well, I'm going to uh, pass it on to Kelly. He'll pass it to Tim for some more um, political analysis questions. Kelly? Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Well, Ethan, it's so good to talk to you, um, and it's so exciting to talk to another Kelly. And um, – I'm really, like, so impressed with your experience. Um, I'm not far from you um, in terms of geographic location, and my stepdad actually went to the high school that you went to. So when I was, like, looking over your information, I felt kind of a kinship there. Um, 
I, you know, I, I watched your videos and I was like, oh my goodness, he reminds me of, if you watch him, MSNBC, he reminds me of a little bit of like a Steve Kornacki, like maybe without the whiteboard. So it was fascinating to sort of watch and, and take in your analysis. And in particular, you, um, there was a video, I think you might, might have posted even today or in the last, you know, 24 hours about the biggest demographic shifts in 2020. And I was really curious about this demographic shift um, between 30 and 44-year-olds and how they um, sort of shifted plus five towards Trump. And in your video, you talked a little bit about COVID and how that might be um, what was sort of motivating that age group. I will confess that's my demographic. I'm a proud Gen Xer. And so I wanted to hear a little bit more from you about why you think that might be. First of all, it's great to see another Kelly. And also that's really coincidental uh, about your stepdad. But I wanted to say, I, I was looking at the demographic group. Um, you know, this was the only demographic group that actually shifted in favor of Donald Trump significantly. I mean, it was a five point increase from where it was in 2016. And generally, Republicans do better amongst older generations. And that typically doesn't uh, tie into the age group between, you know, 30 and 44. And I just thought that because of COVID-19, it is a very real possibility that this age group, while wouldn't be uh, as safe for COVID-19 as a younger age group, which is traditionally more progressive, way more liberal, um, all the works, but this age group specifically uh, being relatively new, I would say to the workforce compared to the other generations probably thought uh, that the shutdowns and the COVID restrictions may have been too heavy. I mean, they, majority of them, overall majority of them would survive COVID-19 and, you know, if they didn't have a pre-existing condition, a lot of them probably weren't too afraid of the virus to begin with. When we talk about who uh, the health advisors really uh, put up there in terms of who's at the most risk, they talk about senior citizens. And uh, this age group could very well have viewed COVID-19 as something that was just an inconvenience rather than a uh, public health crisis. And I know people my age as well who don't really view COVID-19 uh, as super serious. Voters in my state that uh, didn't necessarily vote for Joe Biden because of his uh, potential COVID response, but for other issues. And for some of these voters, the COVID response was directly impacting them. Um, if we're talking about, I guess, some uh, students who could have been not even a decade out of college that are in the workforce that weren't able to work for five, six months, that are hearing President Trump say, we want to get you back to work. Whereas Joe Biden, you know, even if this may just be an attack ad that's misrepresenting what he's saying, saying we're going into a dark winter, there are things that need to be shut down. Well, that won't necessarily resonate with the base that is going to end up being hurt financially if they haven't been already. I mean, also, they aren't as affected as older age groups by COVID-19. And I think that uh, a few people very well could have viewed uh, the COVID-19 situation as really not important. I have uh, my friend's parents who actually were registered Democrats, voted for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. But um, as soon as COVID-19 hit, uh, they're from Virginia. And as soon as COVID-19 hit, um, they started listening to President Trump a lot more, and they were home a lot more, and they were really upset about that. And they ended up voting for uh, President Trump in uh, the general election. They are now registered Republicans. And that is because of the fact that COVID-19 really made them think that it, the country shouldn't be shut down. They personally were not affected by COVID-19. No one in their family really um, would have been unless they had a pre-existing condition or, or they uh, were one of the uh, statistics. Unfortunately, that's just our situation about it. But they pretty much were safe with a lot of what they were doing, but they were very upset about the lockdowns. They were very upset about what was happening in Virginia. And their motivation for voting for President Trump was simply the fact that President Trump wanted to open up the country. 
and they personally didn't think people would be affected by it. I mean, if they weren't affected by it, their reasoning was, why would anyone else? And I think that could have been a mindset amongst uh, many voters, specifically in that age group that aren't traditionally affected by COVID-19, but also uh, may be directly impacted by the economy and shutdowns and may view that as a negative on the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. And as I, I think about what you said, I think that's right on. Um, I mean, even when I think about myself, I have been less impacted than people who are older than me. Um, and I see even on social media, people who are my age, who are very much like, well, we don't need to shut down the entire country for this. It's a certain segment of the population, and I want to get on with business as usual. So I can absolutely see that. If I can ask one more question, um, I saw the video that you posted related to the um, Georgia Senate special elections, and one of the things in that video that you said was that, yes, it's possible that Democrats can win it, um, but they may not be able to do anything substantial. And I'm wondering if you could tell um, the listeners why that would be. Well, the Georgia special elections are very weird because we haven't seen any ticket splitting at all this election. There was not a single Senate race that voted differently than the presidential result. And Georgia going into a runoff very well could break that. But the Democrats definitely have a possibility at Georgia. But the question remains, will they win it? I don't think they will win it, but it's not impossible. Um, For the Democratic Party, if they are to win both the Georgia Senate seats, That puts them in the majority only through a vice presidential tiebreaker. The last time we had one of those was for a very brief period of time when Vice President Al Gore was outgoing in the year 2000. And he was the tiebreaker. Um, And it was a very, very short blip. I mean, this only lasted maybe um, a handful of days. And when you're looking at this election, this could happen. If January 5th ends up with two Democratic victors, uh, we could enter into a 50-50 tie where Vice President-elect Kamala Harris would break that tie. But... There are conservative Democrats. A lot of these Democrats that are in Republican states, such as Joe Manchin in West Virginia or John Tester in Montana, their constituents aren't exactly as liberal as, you know, for West Virginia, neighboring Maryland or Virginia or in Montana. We could be talking about the West Coast. These constituents don't exactly want a progressive or even liberal agenda to be passed. They voted for Donald Trump overwhelmingly, double digits in both of those states specifically. And Joe Manchin has already announced he will not uh, support really court packing. Um, It seems as if he's not going to end up supporting statehood. Um, That would be something that in a situation, if Joe Manchin does end up supporting statehood, it would uh, make his vote really irrelevant just because it would add four new senators that would likely be Democratic senators. But um, if Joe Manchin denies court packing and denies really any type of significant Democratic legislation because his constituents won't hold him responsible, just as many Democrats remember back in 2010 when they voted for Obamacare, 63 of them were voted out. They are going to be very worried about the reelection bids in conservative states. And I don't think that even with a 50-seat majority, the Democrats will, number one, get anything done because of conservative Democrats. And even if they got them, they will pay a heavy price for that at the next election, whether it's 2022 whether it's 2024, the Democrats are uh, in a position where even if they win the majority, it really won't feel like it just because those Democrats are going to be very solid about the positions. Their constituents come first. And when they're saying vote to the right or don't vote for this, uh, they are going to be, uh, that's going to put the Democrats at a very big disadvantage, even if they win both Senate races. 
Yeah, it's definitely going to be a tough road to go for Democrats. Um, I'm going to pass it to Tim, but thank you so much, Ethan, for your time and your analysis. And you are doing exactly what I wished I had done at your age, and I'm really excited for your future. So thanks for being here. And, Tim, what are your questions? Oh, good evening, Ethan, and thank you for being on with us again tonight. Um, you, uh, you've talked a good bit um, in some of your videos about the state of Ohio, and it has long been considered the bellwether state, the state most representative of America in the country. Uh, I mean, the state is never... Um, Wrong, it seems. Uh, every Republican who's ever won has never won without Ohio. The last Democrat before this year to win without Ohio was Jack Kennedy back in 1960. And yet, here we are in 2020, and Joe Biden lost Ohio by over 8%. Um, is Ohio a state that you no longer consider to be the bellwether state in presidential elections? And if it's not, what state would you look to now as the bellwether state? Well, Ohio broke its streak after 60 years of voting correctly, and I was actually really upset about it voting incorrectly. I wanted a bellwether state to be right. I wanted a state or county that we looked out to be correct this election, but Vigo County, Indiana, which has only been wrong, I believe, twice since 1888, has now been wrong a third time, voted for Donald Trump by 15%. Um, and Ohio, 60 years, correct. I mean, six decades, we're talking numerous elections that it has been perfect. And this election, it was wrong. And I don't think Ohio will be the bellwether state in the future. Voting for Donald Trump, when all of the votes are counted, it looks like the New York Times is expecting it to be a six, seven-point margin for Trump, but still, very large and uh, as, almost as close as it was in 2016 to Donald Trump's victory. Um, and I think if it's not Ohio, which I wouldn't consider to be a bellwether state by any means, I'm going to push aside Ohio. We're probably going to see a state possibly like Georgia or Arizona become the new bellwether states because as we move into new demographic shifts and we're looking at parts of the country where minority groups are moving out of a certain area, the Rust Belt probably won't be our uh, bellwether region. While it has voted correctly, um, since 2008, that's not too long, number one. And number two, it is going to be getting redder and redder year after year. But Arizona and Georgia seem to be diversifying uh, and seem to be states that really could swing either way. So I think if we're looking for an official bellwether, I would place my bet on Arizona. And if not Arizona, then Georgia. But I don't think that any region in the Rust Belt should really be looked to as this new bellwether just because of how much redder it has gotten. Um, and despite the entire country, even the national environment being plus four for Biden by the end of this election, assuming that he doesn't expand his lead based off the outstanding votes in California and other predominantly democratic states. Well, it sort of begs the question, um, is there any region in the Rust Belt that could possibly be a bellwether uh, part ever again? And I really think the answer is no. So I would say Arizona, but if not Arizona, then Georgia. Funny you should mention Arizona because you said watch Arizona on election night in 22, uh, 2022. Uh, now, for our listeners, what is so important that is happening in that particular state in the midterm elections that interest you so much? So we're going to see a, a number of things happening um, in Arizona. Uh, in 2022, mm -hmm. we have – 
a bunch of uh, governor races up. And when we're talking about Arizona specifically, it's a state that's rapidly growing in population. It's expected to gain an electoral vote following this census. Uh, they also have their uh, election up because uh, whoever won this special election, which uh, Mark Kelly, um, Martha McSally has officially conceded that race. So Mark Kelly, the Democrat, won this special election, but it does not secure him a six-year term. In fact, it secures him a two-year term. And he will be up for re-election in 2022 as well. So we will have a governor race. We will have all of the House races there, uh, all 10 of them. And it looks like uh, Ducey and the Republicans are going to be redistricting. Um, and also a Senate race up. So in a state that's diversifying with, uh, I believe, Phoenix, Arizona is one of the top three cities in terms of a growing population. Um, we are going to see probably split support in a year that's expected to be favorable for the Republicans. We will see if that Democratic uh, support that we saw in 2020 will hold. We will see if Mark Kelly, who defeated McSally by just a few percentage points, will hold on. And it'll be a good indicator as to whether or not the Democrats are able to hold on to their suburban support from 2020 and hold on to um, their Latino support the same way they did in 2016, 2018, and shakily in 2020. Um, so Arizona has a lot going on, as do a few other states. But uh, it's a state that I really want to focus on specifically just because of the fact that we are going to see a bunch of elections up specifically in that state. We will see the people of Arizona's response to Governor Ducey's COVID um, action. And we will see if these voters end up swinging to the right as they have historically or will remain in the Democratic column as they voted in this election. Hmm. And, I, and I wanted to uh, advertise for you a little bit here because folks need to go to your YouTube channel and see your new uh, map and video that you have out about what the states might look like post-census. Now, you talked about Texas a lot and how it's poised to gain three electoral votes. Uh, the, the, the state's population is just burgeoning. And at the same time, uh, Donald Trump won Texas by about nine points four years ago, and this year, that lead was down to 5.7%. We saw what Beto O'Rourke did with his come-from-nowhere uh, Senate run, uh, almost knocking off Ted Cruz. Is Texas a state that you are looking toward as a prime battleground in 2024? And what is driving this huge shift to the left in Texas? Well, I would say the population growth that we see uh, in the last census, Texas gained four electoral votes. So under John McCain, mm -hmm. when John McCain won that state, he won it with its 34 electoral votes and Mitt Romney won it uh, by 38. And I know plenty of people are iffy about whether or not they consider the state of Texas to be a swing state. But when you look at the election results uh, and you look at the swing states that were previously mentioned before in 2012 and 2008, Colorado voted more for Biden than Texas did for Trump. Same deal in New Mexico and in Virginia and in Minnesota and in New Hampshire and in Maine, all competitive races back in 2016. And uh, all of them voted for Hillary Clinton less uh, than Donald Trump's victory in Texas in 2016. So 20, uh, Texas specifically has gone from being a 17-point victory for Romney eight years later down to a six-point victory for Donald Trump. And this year was by no means a Democratic wave. The Democrats suffered down ballots. However, in 2018, that would be a good indicator of what we might expect in Texas in a Democratic wave year. And this is before we will see, you know, even more um, population growth. 
in Texas by the time we reach 2024. It is absolutely a swing state. It is absolutely going to be uh, contentious between the Democrats and the Republicans, whether it's a midterm year, whether it's a presidential election year. We will look to Texas as one of the largest electoral prizes as a swing state. Um, and as 2018 showed, in a year where the Democrats could do very well, uh, better work within three points of one of the most well-known senators in the United States, someone who won the Republican primary there two years prior against the president of the United States. So I think Texas absolutely will be a swing state. We should absolutely look to it. Uh, we're seeing increased uh, Hispanic population. Uh, right now, I believe Texas actually has uh, white voters in the minority. And as we get uh, continue through the next few years, that is only going to increase the uh, percent of minority vote share in Texas. And as we probably all know, uh, minorities typically break for the Democratic Party uh, in a very large split. I think the closest demographic group may have been Asian voters, and Donald Trump received around a third of them in 2016. But uh, again, the Democratic Party could do very well here, especially with its growing population, specifically the growing minority population. And in 2024, Texas is going to be a prime target, especially if they run someone uh, such as Kamala Harris or even Joe Biden again. We could see a revamped campaign focused on reaching out to Latino voters because White voters drove the margin uh, down in Texas this time, despite Biden losing uh, Latino voters by a pretty significant amount compared to Hillary Clinton. If everything worked together the same way it did for Better O'Rourke with just a couple hundred thousand or nearly a million more uh, voters in that state that would be skewing to the left, it is very possible the Democrats win there in the future. All right. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? Yes. And, and speaking of Texas, my recommendation would be uh, for the DNC to give Chuck Rocha and Solidary Strategies um, money just to work that area between El Paso and the Gulf of Mexico that uh, borders the Mexican border because that area we did poorly in, and it is a heavy Hispanic area, and Chuck Rocha seems to have a real plan uh, on what to do there, and that is his home state. Well, Ethan, I want to tell you a story real quick, and then I'll ask you two more uh, kind of questions about what you got going on. Um, the week I booked you, my son, who, who was a first-time voter this time, uh, we were talking about the election. He goes, well, Daddy, I've got this uh, site on YouTube that I've been getting the best information off of. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Let's Talk Elections. And I just smiled <laughs> and I said, well, Ethan's been on my show before, and he's coming on in a few weeks. And so I don't know if I, I burst his bubble or he was excited that I, that I – um, was in tune and that I was, you know, had somebody young and fresh like yourself uh, of the new generation. Um, so I just thought I'd tell you that story that you're getting out there and obviously your page views, your video views, you know it. Um, but let me ask you two more questions. Um, what do you have planned for Let's Talk Elections going forward? First of all, that is awesome. That is really cool, uh, to say the least. But um, for me personally, I think I'm just going to keep moving forward. I don't like taking breaks from politics. Um, for me, I think that I'm just going to spend my time focusing on the special elections and the upcoming governor elections in Virginia uh, and New Jersey, because uh, immediately in the Obama administration, that was the prime target for Republicans in 2009 to uh, get their voice heard that they were pushing away from uh, Barack Obama as a president. And I think we could see the same thing um, with newly elected uh, president-elect Biden. And I think that's what I'm going to focus on. I think I'm going to focus on um, who could potentially be in Biden, Biden's administration, who's going to be running in those special elections, because he's probably going to have to end up picking a senator. He's probably going to end up having to pick a House of Representatives member. And it is going to be uh, pretty important that he doesn't pick certain 
um, senators out of swing states or certain senators that have Republican governors or certain representatives. But uh, I think I'm going to focus on the Biden administration, what he's going to do moving forward um, up until around mid 2021, when we're really going to jump into some of these special elections, some of these governor elections. And then from there, it's going to pick up on the midterms. So by the time we reach November next year, we will know really who are the major contenders in the 2022 midterm elections. And we will have a much better idea as to whether or not it would actually shape up to be a Republican wave year. Um, because in 2009, all of the preliminary election data had said the Democrats were going to win in the House races and win the popular vote there by 10 points. By the time we reached November 2010, the Republicans were up by 10 points. That's a 20-point swing in just under a year. And uh, by that point, I think we'll have a pretty good idea, but things definitely could change. But I don't want to make a, a too early estimation, you know, January, February 2021 to say definitively it will be a Republican wave year. There's always a possibility that the Democrats do well. But historically, we also do know the Republicans will do uh, pretty well. Um, given they are the opposition party, but uh, I'm going to focus on the governor election, special election, Biden's administration, and then go right into the midterm elections. And that's how I envision me uh, going forward with my channel. Excellent. And um, we'll be watching that. And then Kelly alluded to Steve Kornacki. And so you're a high school senior, so you've been getting this question or would get this question if you got to go to family reunions and family gatherings coming up. So we'll ask you for all those folks. Are you going to go straight to the pros? Or are you going to go to a college here next year? Uh, so I uh, absolutely am going to go ahead and attend a college. I'm applying to schools in the D.C. area. So George Washington, Georgetown, American, University of Maryland, University of Virginia. Um, Steve Kornacki is definitely one of my heroes, I will say. I uh, absolutely um, love his uh, content. Every time he comes on, it's very interesting. He reminds me a lot of John King as well. And I do want a magic wall for myself. But um, I don't think that I would go straight into working uh, for a news company or trying to get into journalism. Um, I actually uh, worked for BuzzFeed News for the past six months, and that's been a very interesting experience. I really enjoyed it, but I don't think that I would want to go straight into journalism um, or really uh, doing anything um, super political yet. I definitely want to go to college. I definitely want to spend the next four years expanding my knowledge, studying government outside of the United States. Um, you know, comparative politics, international relations, a lot of that really interests me. And while I do believe that I have a pretty good understanding of parts of the American electorate, it's always great to get more knowledge. And I really want to spend the next four years studying it intently, maybe even go into law school in the future. But uh, for right now, I, it looks like I'm going to end up going to college for political science. Um, and that's really what I want to study. That is a wise decision. That was a little bit of a joke about the uh, going pro, although seriously, I mean, you, you've got better content than some of the pros there are. Um, and, and I tell you what, some of the friends of the show are people that work at colleges you've mentioned, like um, at UVA, Kyle Kondik and Miles Coleman and um, uh, Bill Snyder. He's a friend of the show. He's been, he teaches, I believe at George Mason now and has taught at uh, George Washington in the past too. So, um, I, I bet they're going to be like recruiting you like you were an athlete. Well, uh, one final thing, uh, tell everybody in case they don't have any way to get to the show, how do they um, uh, view Let's Talk Elections? Well, they would just go to youtube.com slash Let's Talk Elections. There isn't an apostrophe there, and that's where you will find my channel. And uh, Or you can just type it in on the YouTube search bar, and my channel should be the first thing that comes up. Yes. Well, we have thoroughly enjoyed it, and we love watching your videos, and we are not going to wait two years to have you back. We're going to have you back sooner than later. 
Okay, that would be great. Yes. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Yes. Thank you, guys. Ethan Kelly of Let's Talk Elections. If you have not watched those videos, they are so informative and timely. I highly recommend uh, putting that in your YouTube feed, subscribing his to his channel. Well, Kelly, let's get back to where we were. Um, I, I'm sure you're not on Parlor, neither am I, but it got in front of me on Twitter. When you read that, when I sent that to you today, what were your thoughts? I, 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 well, first of all, let me just say that I don't know what I was doing when I was um, Ethan's age, but wow, <laughs> what an amazing <laughs> young man. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what's interesting is that um, I don't know if you, you all know this, but I did my dissertation on social media. So I'm fascinated by social media and how people communicate and, and, and the messages um, that um, uh, folks, um, use this plat- these platforms for. So I don't know about Parler, but I'm fascinated by this. Uh, but what really stands out to me is that Kelly Loeffler, and let me tell you all that it pains me that her name is Kelly also, um, have basically said that, you know, she feels like, you know, that um, under, you know, Stacey Abrams had registered hundreds of thousands of black and Democratic voters and that we should never let that happen. And there's so much to this election that draws on really ugly history. Um, Tim was talking about this earlier, right, around the campaign um, around Reverend Warnock, and, you know, that it's drawing on some really nasty, ugly history and tropes and stereotypes. Um, I don't know if that's how you quite phrase it, Tim, but that's how I understood it, that, you know, this is 2020, and I'm not trying to suggest that uh, we are further than we are, but I do think that um, in some ways we are a little better than that. And um, I certainly think, um, I I believe as someone who doesn't live in the South, I believe the South is better than that. And that, you know, there's this nasty, very um, uh, uh, political rhetoric that's happening around frightening people that black and brown voters are going to come out and, you know, do these harmful things. They don't have the same, um, uh, you know, uh, values that you do. They don't care about America the way you do. And that's how Kelly Loeffler is campaigning right now, right? That she's, she's doing all these things about not wanting everyone to vote there's a certain segment of people that she wants to vote, which are not black and brown people. Um, that, you know, Crooked Kelly was actually trending on Twitter uh, towards the end of last week. Um, and so it's very clear to me that the, the Republicans in this, these special uh, elections don't want black and brown people to vote. One, because they know that they're, they're a majority who can swing elections, but also because they want to draw on something very ugly and, um, want to scare people in, in, into saying that these people don't represent the values that you represent. And actually, these are voters who deeply care about things like health care, who deeply care about COVID and the response to COVID, who deeply care about jobs and opportunity and education. And so I, I was shocked at what she put out. I, I, I mean, shocked to some extent. I don't know what Parler is. I assume it was somewhat private and she didn't think that that would go public. Um, but I also think that, you know, this 
this group of Republicans is very much okay with campaigning in a way that um, doesn't do dog whistles. It's very obvious that they want to divide people and that they are okay with trying to scare people into an America that is more diverse, but also into an America that they think, um, uh, you know, doesn't, um, uh, you know, will somehow um, not um, include all Americans. And so it's, it's dangerous. It's scary. Um, and I, I'm, I'm deeply disappointed by this kind of campaigning, but I'm not surprised after Donald Trump and in the last five years. Yes, it definitely wasn't a dog whistle. It was a big, bright orange rape whistle. I mean, it was so – there was no connective tissue there. I mean, it wasn't, you know, let's register, you know, Republican-leaning voters and let's turn out people that think like us. It was just straight up, we don't want black people to vote. I mean, I just can't believe she went there, and that may kind of um, portend what parlor is – but they have to realize now people that watch media and watch social media uh, on the progressive side, and they're going to go on Parler, and they're going to see when they put stuff like that out, they're going to copy-paste, they're going to screenshot it, and it's going to get out there. So I hope they can't think they can go to the secret online clan meeting and, and behave that way. Um, Tim, I think I sent you all the site link to Radical Raphael, a site that they put up which – you know, Kelly Loeffler's campaign just dumped everything. I was like, pace yourself, woman. You've got three months or so, or two months, to, to, and you've just unloaded the kitchen sink on one day. Um, what's your thoughts on how she's open to this campaign? Well, <clears throat> I sort of look for her to do different versions of the same thing every day. I think that her idea is to put him on defense and uh, and to use dog whistle politics uh, to do it. Uh, you know, uh, like the old saying goes down here in the South, stir, stir up the great unwashed. And, you, you know, and, and just viciously attack the man, you know, like this, right through to January the 5th. Uh, it, it, it's, it's like, I don't want anybody. I've actually heard politicians down here, uh, Dr. Masio, say, you know, I don't want anybody to vote against my opponent because they're black. Well, that's exactly what they want, and that's why they mentioned it like that. That's the sort of thing that is going to be happening in this race. It's going to get, it, it, it's already really ugly, and it's going to get even uglier. And, uh, you, you you know it's it's a shame that they can't campaign on the issues, but she she's not going to do that because she's the sitting senator and she would have to campaign on her record or lack of one, and you you know that's that you know we just better brace ourselves because that's what's coming, David. You you know that as well as me here. And these and these attacks are not all created equal. Like you mentioned the one uh, about. In the 90s, uh, Raphael Warnock was in a, a, like a student teacher pastor. You know, it was like he was uh, I think, mm-hmm. um, kind of in an apprenticeship at a church in Harlem. And they had, and 
Fidel Castro came to the United Nations, and he could only go so many miles from it, and they invited him. And Raphael Warnock probably had zero say, well, no matter how you feel about right. it, that decision. And still, it is a church. And, and I think that's what makes this so tricky is uh, some of these attacks are about Raphael Warnock's sermons and church mm-hmm. activities. And I wonder if a lot of white ministers may come, even mm. if they lean more middle-of-the-road, apolitical, or conservative, just are kind of like – I don't like people attacking what somebody says in a pulpit because that should be a little more of a sacred area. Uh, Kelly, what do you think on that? No, I agree with you. And what's funny, um, David, to me is some, I forgive me for the pop culture reference about um, celebrities who got married uh, like plantations, right? Cause I've been thinking about this a lot and like, we think about these folks who got married 20 years ago at a plantation, and there's all this conversation about, well, is this person on our side? Well, 20 years ago, we were having very different conversations about these kinds of things. So, you know, if he in the 90s was a part of a church that had, you know, Fidel Castro or had some other sort of Marxist leader having conversations, okay, but where is the movement since then, right? I mean, we can't always say that people start somewhere and finish at the same place. So to me, it's I, I, it's so irrelevant. And again, I acknowledge I'm not a Georgia voter, but it's so irrelevant to me that he may have been somehow affiliated with a church 20, 30 years ago who had this particular viewpoint that may or may not be the same viewpoint now, Right. So all of these things seem so ridiculous and, again, are very much about trying to scare people into not listening to what is the platform. At the end of the day, what do we care about? Do we care about people having health care? Do we care about people having access to reproductive justice? Do we care about people having access to insurance? I mean, these are, you know – uh, really American had a whole video trending this past week on Twitter about Kelly Loeffler, who is, you know, a, a person who is worth nearly $500 million, who has a private jet, who used this private jet for, um, uh, paid for the private jet through like tax breaks and all kinds of stuff, who actually doesn't really care about people who are suffering from COVID right now. But yet the shift is, uh, Reverend Warnock is somehow affiliated with these things 30, 40 years ago. I mean, it's it's so ridiculous. And so I really hope that people think about what's in front of you right now, because we all change. We all have different perspectives. Point. We need to be thinking about what's the thing that's going to move us forward. Um, and so it's, it's, I'm, I'm deeply disappointed, but again, not surprised, but I also kind of horrified they continue to build on this trope, these tropes. And I think they're going to have to do that because that's where the Republican Party is these days. That's where their president is. They're going to have to do these awful, racist, sexist, terrible things to get ahead because they think that's what's going to win. And I think in the end of the day, that's actually not what's going to get them ahead. 
Yes, short-term gains, definitely not long. And, and uh, like I said, there's more attacks, and we can't get into them all tonight. And But that particular one, um, somebody needs to tell them that Miami is not voting in, in this election because it's in Georgia. And that, that attack really just doesn't um, resonate unless they're trying to raise money off of Cuban-Americans down in that area. Well, um, Kelly, we want to thank you so much for coming on in. We didn't get to as much as we wanted to, but we, we got to a lot, and it was great to have Ethan Kelly on. So I want to thank you for being our guest host tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be with you all anytime. Sure thing. Well, until next week, that's been the Kudzu Vine. Not everybody. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force?